2: Welcome to the show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvin Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And you've tuned in to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, or maybe you're just curious about some things. We'll do the best that we can to answer those questions. Our phone number for your live calls is 340-9585. Let me say that again. It's area code 210. 340-9585. 3409585. You can also call us toll free at 877-630KSLR. Numerically, that's 6305757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also send questions in to us via our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. If you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just push the call now button and you will be connected automatically to our studio producer. Remember, we love your live calls, and if you get them in early, then we won't run out of time at the end of the program. It seems crazy that it's already Monday. The weekend went so fast. Hope you had a great day at church. We did. It was Communion Sunday here uh, at Calvary Chapel. And we loved that. It was a great day. Some people got saved, and we had a full house again so it 's just really, really a good thing. We have a lot of people you could be praying for us we've got a lot of people suffering some really serious physical issues and and um, uh, we would love to know that people out there praying. God knows all of their names, but um, these things sort of run in clusters it seems and we're, we're uh, experiencing a cluster right now, so we would appreciate your prayers. Because it's Monday tonight, we have our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel at 7 o'clock. You can bring the whole family and worship together, and then you kind of separate into your own areas. The ladies uh, are going to be finishing, I think, today, the book of Philemon, and and Makassariah is going to be teaching. Uh, pastor Ken will be teaching the men, and then uh, our high school pastor... Nelly uh, will be teaching the high school age youth, our junior high school uh, age kids will be taught by Chris Sanchez, all of that at 7 o'clock, and of course we have child care provided free of charge as well for the little tiny ones. So all of that's going on today. Let's get to some questions and any phone calls that you might have. Uh, our first question today comes from Kirby from our mobile app. Uh, Pastor Ron, have you heard of a Bible called the Jesus Bible? Is it something we could use? Um, Kirby, you could use any Bible. Um, you just don 't want to read the comments on some of them. The Jesus Bible comes from um, men who are reputable good teachers. I know Ravi Zacharias is involved in it. Louis Giglio uh, is involved with it, and the other names escape me, but these are solid guys and i 'm sure you 'd be fine but but Kirby, one of the things and i 've said it uh, in response to similar questions before. Um, My first preference, and it's a very strong preference, is always that you just get a Bible that has Bible in it. The problem with study Bibles is that we read the comments uh, for clarity rather than depending on the Holy Spirit or learning to interpret what the Bible says. And and it kind of makes us all... Um, and capable of solid hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is simply the, the, the science of interpretation. There's a method to interpreting the Bible. Um, and, and usually that method is going to be um, of more value if it comes from just experience in the Word. So uh, the Jesus Bible, I'm sure it's fine. Uh, the text doesn't change. It's just the comments and the focus. Uh, The only Bibles that I would say especially to stay away from, and this isn't one of them, would be those that come from a systematic uh, theology skew. And by that I mean uh, they're going to use all of their comments to convince you of a particular systematic theology. And again, I've said this many times, our systematic theology needs to come from the Bible. We shouldn't read the Bible through our systematic theology. And if we'll do that, we'll be on really solid ground. So, Kirby, I don't think there's a problem with the Jesus Bible at all. I got the other names. Uh, John Piper and Max Lucado are the other two. Uh, the problem, of course, John Piper is very, very strongly Reformed. Um, the others, not so much. Uh, but um, just read your Bibles. Just the Bible. Here is a question from... Our email inbox for Mick. Uh, I asked a question before on why the genealogy of Jesus was different in Matthew and Luke. Going through Luke, I found another difference I'm curious about. Uh, I know this isn't a contradiction, but why is the temptation of Jesus presented in different order in Matthew 4 as it is in Luke 4? Matthew lays it out as command the stones first, throw yourself down second, and worship me third. Luke writes first, command the stones, worship me, and throw yourself down. So the second and the third temptations are... are, um, Changed around, and he says, "I'm just curious if there's any significance of why they're in a different order." Uh, Mick, there's no significance of why they're in a different order, uh, and you're right. This isn't a contradiction at all. Um, I, I think, in all probability, um, we know that that Luke would have interviewed many of the um, men who are now apostles. Um, uh, Matthew would have been there firsthand when Jesus returned and started picking out his his uh, his disciples. Um, Luke would be getting all of this information secondhand, and it's probably just the way the story was communicated to uh, uh, to Luke. Now, if the problem we would have is if. Matthew said, this is the way it happened, and this is the order it happened, and then if Luke said, no, this is the way it happened, and the order it happened, then we would have a contradiction. It's the same exact information. In fact, if you put the two accounts side by side, uh, you're going to find that there's no problem at all reconciling the two. Uh, It's just that, that... the, the order and the way the story was told but but all of the details of the story are the same, so uh, no significance at all it's just um, the simplest explanation is why in fact uh they're, they're uh, they they are different orders because that's the way the story was communicated differently to the authors you know One of these things that we we understand with with what are supposed contradictions that people in the world say are contradictions, uh, all we have to do is read more closely and we see they're not contradictions at all. Um, So we just take the elements of the story and we read them uh, and understand them uh, as a whole, not necessarily in a chronology. Uh, Throughout the Gospel accounts, things are presented in a different chronology uh, while the story is being told, but um, uh, not for any reason other than in some cases uh, the point that the author is trying to make lends itself to sort of a, a, a change in chronology. So again, no contradiction, and I don't think in this particular case any significant focus. I'll be teaching in Luke chapter 4 pretty soon. We just finished Luke chapter 1 yesterday here at Calvary Chapel, so it um, take me probably another f- four weeks before we are in Luke chapter 4, and the temptations are important to understand. It's really, really great teaching here's a question from our mobile app from Marcus last week I asked a question about the reformed view on salvation versus the Armenian view in Acts 16 it talks about God opening Lydia's heart please explain how this doesn't point to the reformed position on things well Marcus it doesn't point to the reformed position on things because I and I by the way I just taught this last Friday night Uh, it's a great chapter um, but but the truth is that God opens everybody's heart. It's not God opens their heart because he chooses somebody and doesn't choose somebody else. The way he opens our heart is with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. The um, uh, Bible says no one can come to the Father unless he's first drawn. We, we know those things. But the Holy Spirit is the one who does sort of the romancing, sort of the wooing. And that's what would happen uh, in, in Lydia's situation. You know, Paul was preaching. Uh, he had this vision from a man from Macedonia, and and um, um, he, he goes into the, the region of Philippi. Uh, we know it was a small area. There was no, not a large Jewish population. If there was at least 10 Jewish men, there would have been a synagogue. So they were meeting out by the water, uh, a place of prayer. And Lydia from Thessalonica was one of those one of those people. She was a seller of purple, a wealthy woman. Uh, and God opened her heart. How did he open her heart? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So she would have heard Paul preaching. And um, just like happened in church yesterday, we had some people get saved here uh, on Communion Sunday yesterday. It's not that my message convinced them. I just preached the Word, and the Holy Spirit then comes alongside and convicts them. That happens in every position. God opened Lydia's heart. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're Reformed or Arminian in, in in terms of being out of balance one way or the other, Marcus. Marcus. But what it means is very simply that the Holy Spirit came and convicted us of sin, made the Word come alive in our heart, and then led us to that place where He revealed the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus said He would do, not only to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, but He would convince people that Jesus was the answer. Jesus said, He, the Holy Spirit, will testify of me. So we're all drawn. Nobody gets saved apart from the move of the Holy Spirit. doesn't matter, again, what your position on systematic theology is. But please understand, Marcus, and this is, I think, the question that we dealt with a little bit uh, last week. When you read the Bible trying to prove a Reformed position or an Arminian position, well, you're viewing the Bible through that the lens of, of your systematic theology, instead of just saying, well, here's what it says. So again, we know that anybody who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not because of the presentation. It's because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And it's the Holy Spirit who has to open the heart of a man or a woman. And that's what happened with Lydia. So Marcus, I hope that helps and clarifies things a little bit. And again, I want to encourage you, uh, a Reformed position, you can listen to a John MacArthur on the radio and, and um, um, you know have you redefining words, this word doesn't mean this, it can only mean this because we know this, but, but, but what he's not doing is simply teaching the Bible. He's teaching you his position on the Bible, but to have a Reformed position, a Calvinistic viewpoint of scriptures you have a God who's literally in Heaven saying, I choose you, I don't choose you. I choose you, but I don't choose you. There's no way you can come to Heaven because I didn't choose you. Romans 8 verse 29, First Peter chapter 1, the first two verses very clearly say that the basis of God's choice of any man or any woman is His foreknowledge. God who lives outside of time and space knows the end from the beginning. And God simply knows those of us who are going to choose him back. And the balance, Marcus, between the Armenian position, which is way out of whack, and the Reformed position, which is way out of whack, the balance in the center. And one of the beauties about teaching the Bible the way we do here at Calvary Chapel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is I teach it as it comes up. When I go to uh, teaching the book of Ephesians and I get to the first chapter, verse 14, uh, I can teach the security of the believer. We are secure. Why? Because God has given us his Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That's very important. God wants us to know we're saved. I love the fact that I'm secure. 27 years as a Christian, Marcus, I've never had one minute where I've doubted my salvation. Not one minute. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been given to me. Demonstrably, he's been given to me. And God guarantees my inheritance, having made a down payment. So I can teach that. Now, I have no problem when I get to 1 Corinthians 6 or Galatians chapter 5 and teach that people who live like this, and the list of sins we're all familiar with, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the, the, the reform position would say, well, what about that guarantee? The Arminian position would say, well, see, you can lose your salvation. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that people whose lives are characterized with this kind of sin, living these lifestyles, well, they're not really Christians at all. It doesn't matter what we say we are. God knows who and what we are. So that's the kind of balance, Marcus, that will give you great peace and great confidence in God. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. if you have a live call or question, Edward writes in, Galatians 1 says, Paul did not receive the gospel from man, but from God. How could he not have heard it from man? Well, um, clearly Paul heard it from men. That's one of the things that made him so angry as Christianity was was spreading like wildfire and people were getting saved, especially uh, early. And it was Jews that were converting, leaving the faith and becoming Christians. Uh, it drove him crazy. He heard it, but he didn't have ears to hear. But when Jesus apprehended him, Edward, on the road to Damascus, and he saw Jesus, he he, he his eyes were opened. Um... Jesus invited him to be a believer. That's exactly what happened. Then we know that for a period of three years, and this is what Paul's talking about, not just the gospel, not just the word about Jesus Christ uh, crucified and risen from the dead, but the gospel as it's presented in all of the Pauline epistles, that was presented to him directly by Jesus himself in the Arabian wilderness. Not Arabia like Saudi Arabia, but but, but sort of uh, in the Syrian uh, Arabia. Uh, in the ancient world, and, and, and in, in a way that we're not given the details of. Paul would go out in this wilderness, and Jesus would meet him for a period of three years and teach him, wouldn't you have loved to have been in on those Bible studies? So Paul, when he got up and began his ministry in earnest, not yet in his missionary journeys, but began going into towns and declaring the wonders of God, he was giving information that was hot off the presses. I mean, he just got it from Jesus, and he passed it on to others. And people were getting saved, he was powerfully, we're told, proving from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the man who once persecuted Christians, were now was now actively looking for people to make them Christians. But it was because of the gospel he got from God. Now, you have to also understand the context of Galatians. Paul is countering the Judaizers, the legalizers. You must be circumcised uh, in order to be saved. You must worship on the Sabbath. You must celebrate the festivals. Uh, Paul was simply saying, no, 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 I got my information from Jesus personally, and that's not what he told me. And I think the contrast there, uh, Edward in particular, is valuable because um, the others who were swept in by these legalizers, these Judaizers, they received their information from people. Sort of the question that we just had from Marcus, you know, if you, you listen to somebody and they convince you that a reformed position or an Armenian position is the only way to view the scriptures, well then you're getting your information not from God but from men. Obviously, we have the Bible that Paul didn't have, but Jesus sat with Paul when he was just still Saul and told him the truth, taught him what he needs to know. So that's how he got it from Jesus. Again, he would have heard the gospel, but every time he heard it before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, it just made him angrier and angrier and angrier. So, Edward, I hope that answers your question. Here is a question from Paige. She wants to know, Why did God ask Abraham to kill Isaac? This was a test, Paige. Now, let me say at the outset that God had no intent that Abraham would kill Isaac. That was never the point. The point of this whole episode was a test. Now, here's why he needed the test. Abraham. Abraham had been given the gift of a son, this miraculous son, born of the spirit and out of the flesh, as opposed to, to uh, Ishmael and, and Hagar. This was a miraculous supernatural birth. And you can imagine that he was just thrilled to death. He wanted a son. Um, he had no heir uh, prior to that point. Uh, he had the whole episode with Hagar and, and, and Sarai and, and uh, Ishmael. And finally, God says, no, from your own body, Abraham, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And you can imagine he got so carried away with the son that over the years, now at the time Genesis 22 occurs, uh, Isaac is a young man, 16 to 22 or 23 years of age. Um, And evidently, Isaac had become more important to Abraham than God was. You know, we we understand that. We have people that have babies all the time. And, um, you know, they're so grateful to God while they're pregnant. When the baby comes, it's like they forget all about the Lord. You know, they don't come to church. They, you well, know, I've got to take care of my baby. I've got to do this. i got to do that. Um, um, and, and in this case, it was Abraham's problem. And so what he did was very simply say to Abraham, kill your son. This was a test. That's why God stopped him. He said, now I know that you fear God. We would say it in a New Testament construct like this, now that I know you love me more than you love the baby. But God never intended to kill. Now, we also know that there was a great growth process in Abraham on that three-day journey to the place we call Calvary where Isaac was offered as a sacrifice. Father, we have everything we need for the sacrifice, everything but the lamb. Remember what Abraham said? God will provide himself, and this is a literal Hebrew, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And then when he got up there and Abraham lifted the knife, God said, don't touch the lad." King James. Now I know that you fear God. Well, see, God knew all along what Abraham was going to do, and God, of course, knew what he was going to do. But Abraham didn't know. It was at that moment that Abraham had to know once and for all God, you are the gift giver. You are the greater one. I love you. Thank you. I appreciate that, Paige. Let's go to Jonestown, Texas now and talk with Dale on line one. Dale, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey,
3: Pastor Ron. I had a question in Revelation about uh, the tribes that were being sealed and Dan not appearing there. Now, I did some research. I'm familiar with the theory that, you know, Dan was an idolatrous tribe and Mm -hmm. was being excluded from the kingdom of heaven. But I'm trying to reconcile that in Ezekiel. Dan is given a portion in the millennial kingdom, and his name, in fact, uh, appears on the east gate as well. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering, you know, if you could reconcile those two.
2: Yeah, I, I can. You know, uh, Manasseh and Ephraim um, kind of take its place in Revelation. However, um, in, in the Millennial Kingdom, in uh, Ezekiel's is prophesying of the Millennial Kingdom, and this is just a good picture of God's grace. Yes, uh, Dan, because it was an idolatrous tribe, they were left out. There are consequences to our sin, Dale. Uh, but in this particular case, uh, we know that... that Dan is reestablished in the millennial kingdom because God is going to bring all of his tribes together and again it's just a a great New Testament picture for us of God's grace covering our sins when he is uh, when we are faithless God is faithful and that's all Dan is not excluded in the millennial kingdom but there were really severe consequences to his sin their sin was particularly um, um, uh, bad and in in this particular case uh, expulsion was was the immediate remedy but but again it it will all come together in the millennial kingdom so i hope that answers your question it's not a contradiction it's simply um ezekiel looking forward to the future god's going to gather them all together uh in the book of revelation when he's not included uh it's uh john is looking from a New Testament perspective in about 95 AD. uh, He understands what's happened to Dan, uh, but God will bring them all together. Thank you, Dale. I appreciate the question very, very much. 210-340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from, uh, well, I'm going to do that one on the other side of the break. We're inside about a minute now, I think, so this one is a little bit. uh, Here's one I can do quickly, I think. Anonymous, I think most people now believe there's life on other planets. There have been so many UFO sightings that there must be. My question is, did Jesus die for their sins as well as ours? Well, Anonymous, your question is really faulty because I don't think most people believe there's life on other planets at all. In fact, the absence of life, the evidence is overwhelming. Um, so um, there, there, there is not life on other planets. Jesus told us uh, that he told us everything. He hid nothing from us. Uh, so, um, look from a biblical perspective, and not the people that see Martians sort of behind every corner. Hope that helps. Well, we got thirty minutes left in the Monday program. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions, or toll free eight seven seven six three zero K S L R. We'll be back in two minutes. Welcome back to the second half of our program, 340-9585 live calls and questions. Very quick before I go take a phone call from Harold, um, uh, I, I love it when on the commercial break we get the commercial for uh, Pastor Eddie Hernandez from uh, Riverview Calvary Chapel uh, in New Braunfels. He is a dear friend. He got saved in our church. He's uh, been serving the Lord faithfully for a lot of years. So um, if you want to listen to his radio program, God bless you. You'll be blessed. And those of you in the New Brunvilles area, um, he's a great Bible teacher, and he's a man whose faith has been tested. Um, I, I'm really, really proud of, of uh, Eddie. Let's go to Harold on line one. Harold, thanks for calling. You're on the air.
3: Good afternoon, Pastor Ron. Hi right, Harold, how are you doing? Fine. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm a little under the weather, so
2: uh, I'm sorry.
3: But I'm yeah. Well, it's just an ear infection. I'm gonna go to the doctor tomorrow. You know, some of the things that bother me sometimes is, you know, I feel sorry for the preacher sometimes because they have to use, the, you know, the term "inspired word of God." You know, my grandmother. Joe, said it was the Word of God, and that's where I grew up, and I never really used the word to inspire the Word of God, but anyway, uh, I, I caught the first part of the program about the Judaizers, and, you know, to be honest with you, it says it online that, you know, that the Judaizers were were not the Jewish people, but they were the Christians that were acting like the Jewish people. They were getting a little bit mixed. Like maybe the Messianic type that we have today, and but back then they called it Judaizers. And I don't know if you ever heard that before or not, or if you could expand on it.
2: Yeah, I can, Harold. Thank you very much. And I'll be praying for you. I hope you get better. A um, couple of things. Um, the information you get online, you have to scrutinize against the Bible very, very carefully. Um, the Judaizers were Christians, but they were converts from Judaism. And whether you're talking about Colossians or Galatians or in the, in, in the, the council at Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 15, uh, the people that chased Paul all over the country during his missionary trips, uh, they were Jews by birth who converted to Christianity but wanted to hold on to their Jewishness. And, and it, it, which would have been fine if that's all they wanted to do, but, but they wanted to insist that everybody else did it. That's why Acts 15 is such a pivotal chapter in our Bibles. Um, the, the, the idea here is that they were trying to, to, to enslave Christians, Gentile converts. They're trying to slay, enslave them, in effect making them become Jewish. Uh, you remember that before proselytes would convert to Judaism, but, but before Jesus, they, they would become um, uh, Jews. Uh, uh, Simon of Cyrene is a good example, uh, the man that was forced to carry Jesus's cross. Uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch was another, somebody who had, uh, who had accepted the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but didn't have more information. Apollos Uh, would be another one who would be declaring that Jesus is coming, didn't know he'd already come. But, Harold, uh, very, very clearly, Scripture portrays him as Jewish converts to Christianity. Now, here's the problem with Messianic congregations. And um, uh, I I think sometimes we're we're in a place where um, we're always looking for something more than just what the Bible teaches. Um, a messianic congregation ought to be the most joy-filled place in the world because it's Jews who have found the fulfillment of all of the promises God made to Abraham the Christ they've, they've found him he's been revealed to their hearts now the problem is that in too many of those messianic congregations they also try to hold on to their Jewishness um, that's not what happened in the first century church in fact, that's, that's the reason there were problems in the first century church. It's the reason Paul withstood Peter to the face. It's the reason he appeared at the Council of Jerusalem, because the issues were so important. Jews, remember, the church was entirely Jewish until Acts chapter 10. And, and, and that represents a, a long period of time. So when Jews before Acts chapter 10 became, got saved and filled with the Holy Spirit... They became Christians. It was no longer about their Jewishness. Certainly their Jewishness is a part of what made them who they are, but it was no longer about their Jewishness at all. They became Christians. Paul, the most legalistic of all Jews, became a Christian championing the cause of freedom. And he took huge risks withstanding Peter to the face, opposing Peter to the face, because Peter, of course, was a rock star in the early church. So it's an issue that's worth fighting for. What we want to do, is, if somebody wants to, to to, worship our Jesus in a Messianic congregation, that's fine. The problem becomes when they want to hold on to the Jewishness instead of accepting the freedom of the teaching of our New Testament. So, again, it doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means they were causing problems in the same way we have legalizers today. But, but, but if somebody online told you that Judaizers were Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish in their approach, that is to misrepresent what's happening throughout the book of Acts and the reason that Paul would write the letters to both the churches in Colossae and in the region of Galatia. Thanks, Hope. Get better. I'll be praying for you. Good to hear from you again. for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Robert from our email inbox. Um, What in the world? I've been hearing so many questions about Calvinism on the show. Before you go, uh, before I get into the questions, Robert, the reason you're doing that is because a lot of the really good Bible teachers that you're hearing on radio programs and, and on Christian television are Calvinists. John MacArthur uh, is prolific uh, as an author, as a teacher. He's everywhere; you can't miss him. Um, so, uh, the, the 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 questions are normal. You know, the the Calvinist perspective um, makes it appear as though there's. Easy answers to questions. Well, why do some get saved and some don't? Well, God didn't choose them. And if you say, well, that doesn't seem fair. Well, who are you to question God? And and so it just seems to present easy answers. Why is there evil in the world? Because God wanted it to be there. And the, the, the questions aren't that easy. The answers certainly aren't that simple. So that's the reason... You're hearing so many questions about Calvinism on the show. Your two questions are, why is this view of salvation suddenly becoming so widespread in today's church? Let me take that one first. You know, there is a movement in the the, uh, Southern Baptist Convention now. Um, um, Most of the leaders, uh, not all, but most of the leaders in the SBC are called the Neo-Calvinists, or the New Calvinists, and they have adropped, adopted this reformed position of, of salvation. And so in churches that, for the most part, used to be very orthodox, um, there's this battle going on in the Southern Baptist Convention between the the, the Neo-Calvinists and, and those who uh, accepted a more traditional view. I'll give you an example. when adrian rogers was president of the sbc this never could have happened when charles stanley was president of the sbc uh, the calvinists never could have had their way but now with men like uh, al moeller and russell moore uh, with the nine marks group of churches um they're 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 coming into a place of popularity for some reason robert uh, uh, calvinism uh, i think because it offers such simple answers Uh, Calvinism is very appealing to young people and then it becomes a matter of pride no I've got my systematic theology figured out and and I, I think people are looking for easy answers instead of doing the research on their own the second question you had is if it's wrong and it is why would such prominent Bible teachers like Charles Spurgeon cling to it how could someone who knows God and his word like he did cling to a wrong doctrine? It doesn't make sense unless it's not as wrong as we think. Well, see, that's the problem, Robert. It's not as wrong as we think. They've got um, uh, 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 the acronym TULIP uh, is, is used to describe what Calvinists believe. And the, the two real, real issues that, that cause problems are uh, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the L and the I. Um, uh, total depravity, I accept uh, that Calvinists take it to to an unhealthy extreme. I agree, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. There's none good and none who does good. But what they do is they'll take the total depravity part of that and they'll say, well, that means that we can't do anything good like except Jesus, unless God first forces us to, unless he's chosen us to. Um, limited atonement. Uh, limited atonement that God died only for the elect and not for the world that is a pernicious doctrine to say that God didn't die for the whole world when the Bible clearly and perfectly says that he did well it doesn't mean the world well see that's the sort of the gymnastics they have to go through Uh, the other is irresistible grace if God wanted everybody saved then it would be saved because nobody can resist God's will but people resist God's will all the time so um, it's, it's not as wrong John MacArthur. I could listen to John MacArthur all day long until he talks about this perspective on salvation, this soteriology. Um, but, but Calvinists are good Bible teachers. Uh, one of my favorite Bible teachers, Alistair Begg, is, is a Reformed guy. Uh, I don't know why he's wrong in this issue, but he is. But it's not that they're heretical at all because they're not. Just their soteriology is wrong. Now, the other thing, your, your question bringing up somebody like Spurgeon, one of the things to remember is that we're all products of our environment. And in Spurgeon's day, he comes from a, a background in, a, in an area where um, all the teaching was reformed. But that didn't stop him from being a great Bible teacher nor an evangelist. You see, he wasn't unhealthy or unbalanced in his approach to Calvinism. If you read Spurgeon, um, you, you'd almost never find a problem with something. But but today you read the Calvinists and the MacArthur's of the world, um, um, the R.C. Sproles who just recently went to be with Jesus, um, and, and they're so unbalanced And there's a pride sort of behind the whole thing, though we've got the answers, when in fact they've got to do gymnastics with the scriptures to do it. So uh, it is wrong, but no, it's not heretical, it's not that wrong. Uh, what are the five points of Calvinism? Are any of them true? That's the third question. I touched on three of them. Total depravity, um, as long as it's not taken on biblical extreme, is true. Uh, unconditional election, meaning that it's all God, that is not true. Limited atonement is not true, and irresistible grace is not true. Uh, the perseverance of the saints, the, the, the pea and tulip, um, um, is true. Uh, if we finish with the Lord we're his we, we can be secure in our salvation um, I, I think if if you would look at the five points and, and consider yourself a three point Calvin should be in solid ground um, again it's not heresy but it's really important that we don't take these things to extremes and uh, I hope that answers your question Robert Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Here is our next question from Matthew. Pastor Ron, what is the living sacrifice that Romans 12.1 speaks about? Well, Matthew, that's you, a living sacrifice. Now, remember Paul writing, he is a Jew. He was writing at least a portion of the book of Romans to Jewish converts to Christianity. And the contrast would immediately be set up uh, between a dead sacrifice, which every Jew would understand, and a living sacrifice. You know, in the Old Testament, when you'd bring uh, an animal to be sacrificed, it died on the altar. You'd cut its throat, and it would die, and then you would uh, offer it to the Lord as a, as a, as a burnt offering. Um, but what the picture Paul's trying to create in Matthew chapter 12 is that God's not interested in dead sacrifices anymore. He wants living sacrifices, It's easy to say, well, I'd die for Jesus. Peter said that. Lord, I'll die for you. But Jesus isn't asking us to die for him. He's asking us to live for him. And so, Matthew, the living sacrifice is you, heart and soul, mind and body, all of it being given to the Lord. And he's recalling that Old Testament burnt offering, which would be completely consumed on the fire. And what he wants us to recognize is that we who are believers should be completely consumed by Jesus, not by dying on the altar, but by getting on the altar, offering our bodies to God, and living for him as we live with him. So that's the living sacrifice. Hold nothing back. Give everything to God. That's the least we can do, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of everything that he's done for us, if we understand that, Matthew, then we can be that living sacrifice. And it's the one thing we all owe the Lord. You know, he paid a debt that we couldn't pay. He died for us, that we could live. And all he asks for us, from us in return, not to get saved, but once we are saved, all he asks of us is to hold nothing from him. And Matthew, I think personally, this is the, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2 are kind of the, the foundation verses of our ministry here at Calvary Chapel. And I tell my church all the time that unless you are that living sacrifice, then God's not going to be able to use you the way he wants to use you. And your life isn't going to be full. It's not going to be rich. It's not going to be filled with passion. It's not going to be filled with zeal. Paul says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. The only way you can do that is to offer you to Him every day. Lord, what about me, and what about today? If you'll do that, Matthew, you'll find out what being a living sacrifice is all about. I love the fact that God doesn't ask us to die for Him. He asks us to live for Him. The reason that's so significant is in the early church, there were a lot of people who were asked to die for Him. So I hope that Makes sense to you. Thank you very, very much for the question, Matthew. Here is an anonymous question. What does true godly forgiveness look like to you? I've often heard Christians say you forgive, but you don't forget. I personally don't think that's true forgiveness. Well, anonymous, um, you know, our minds don't just stop thinking. If somebody does something really bad to you, they betray you. Um, you know, we have to be careful. It doesn't mean we're withholding forgiveness. It just means that they have to earn our trust back. Now, God, who lives outside of time and space, knows what's true of everybody. If somebody comes up to you who's betrayed you really, really badly and they say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and you say, okay, I'm willing to forgive you, well, God knows already if they mean it, if they're sincere. God knows if they're going to betray you again. But trust has to be earned. And everybody who's fallen into sin, anonymous, needs to understand one of the consequences of sin is we're not God. We don't know the end from the beginning. So we have to be careful around people. We have to be wise in how we respond to people. That doesn't mean we withhold forgiveness. But it also doesn't mean that we go into business with somebody who cheated us once. If a husband cheats on a wife and he comes back and says, well, you God forgave me, you should forgive me, well, we're not God and I can forgive, but but this memory is there and the enemy's there and I want to believe the best and I'm willing to open my heart, but I'm going to be careful, so you better tell me where you've been or who you're talking to, and I've had Men, specifically anonymous over the years, say, well, well, God's forgive me. Why does she keep bringing it up? Because we fall short of the glory of God. Believe me, God knows the future. A really, truly repentant person understands that all of the mistrust that they experienced, they earned, they caused. And so we can forgive, but not forget. Now, there's a trap there that I want to talk about as well. Um, we can justify, well, I can forgive but not forget, and we can justify withholding forgiveness. Well, I'm going to wait till you prove it to me. No, we still have to be willing to offer forgiveness. We just don't have to let that person back into that place of, of intimate trust until we're sure. So that's what true forgiveness is. It's just not being bound by, by anger anymore or unforgiveness, but simply saying, Jesus, bless them. I pray the best for them. And my heart is open if you want to bring that person back into my life. But until I know, until I'm sure, I'm gonna keep a safe distance. That's not unforgiveness at all. That's just being wise. So anonymous, I hope that answers your question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five here is a question from our mobile app from Richard. Were the Sadducees and Pharisees not learned enough in the Torah to know that the scriptures pointed to Jesus? Or were they being ignorant or blinded by Satan? Richard, good question. Um, they were exceptionally learned in the Torah. Um, they knew that the scriptures pointed to a Christ, a Messiah. Here's the problem. They were blinded, not by ignorance, I'm sure they had some help from Satan, but they were blinded by pride. They were blinded by wealth. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were wealthy men, influential men. And it started when John the Baptist began preaching. They went out to try to find what is he up to and why is he doing this and who does he think he is and who are the people saying that he is because they believed that they were God's representatives. And as they were God's representatives, they wanted people coming to them. They liked, according to Jesus, to make long displays of, of uh, pious prayer in the streets. They would tithe to the point of dividing their mints and spices, doing everything so rigidly. But when Jesus showed up on the scene... And said that we're to love our enemies. We're to obey government authorities. Jesus said, you believe in me. The Pharisees, the Sadducees were threatened, the Sanhedrin, the 70 rulers of Israel. They were threatened. Their positions, their wealth, their source of income was all threatened. And they simply made a choice. They didn't want what God had to say even though they knew he was God. Though he proved it, though he reasoned from the scriptures, though nobody ever taught like him. Now, here's the problem. I think we, we need to understand this. Jews today, uh, Paul says, are blinded, a uh, veil covering their hearts, but that veil is removed when anyone turns to Christ. The reference to the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, which was torn, by the way, when Jesus gave up his spirit, access to God was granted. Well, because of that veil that covers their hearts even to this day, they, they don't view the suffering servant passages from Isaiah as an example as even being possible. How could God die? Their, their picture of a ruler, Jesus came riding in on Triumphal Entry Sunday on a donkey, the, the, the beast of peacetime for kings. They wanted him to come in on a war horse because they wanted to be delivered from, from Rome. And and to be fair, there's a lot of prophecies that we'll talk about delivering from the enemies. I just talked about some of them in our study this past week. But unless you also take in the suffering servant passages and apply them to Jesus, then you're going to miss it. You're going to have a worldly perspective. Even Jesus' disciples, are you now at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Jesus said it's not for you to know the times those times belong to my father but Jesus you see came to deliver us from something far more sinister than Rome he came to deliver us from ourselves from sin and from the penalty of sin and honestly Richard the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't think they had a problem that's why Saul gave approval to Stephen's death so they were blinded in part By their flesh, in part because they didn't want to hear, and in part by their pride. And still to this day, unless they turn to Jesus, that veil remains. So, Richard, thank you very, very much for that. Let me see if I have a quick question that I can do. Micah says, why are there some verses in the Bible, or no, are there some verses in the Bible that are more important in terms of authority than others? What about those that are repeated multiple times? Micah, all of the verses in the Bible, especially the ones that speak to us about our witness or our behavior, they're all important. It is the voice of God speaking to us. When God repeats something, he understands that we have problems with that, and so he repeats it. And there's a principle, a hermeneutic principle, that, that, that when God repeats things, they have added importance. But all of the verses in the Bible have great, great importance in terms of authority. Um, we just have to listen and pay attention. Mike, I hope that helps. Thank you for, for the question. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Ladies, tonight you can watch the Women's Bible Study at CalvarySA.com. 7 o'clock, we'll see you then. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh.